Hello and welcome to Off the Bench, a podcast about women in sport, but not exclusively for them. We've called it Off the Bench because we feel that for too long, female athletes have been reduced to the roles of bench warmers by most of the media. Too often, women are given cami roles, even when they excel. They're just not given their fair share in terms of media coverage. We hope Off the Bench will start to redress the balance and that men and women, boys and girls, young and old, and anyone who enjoys stories about dedicated athletes pushing themselves to the limit will enjoy what follows. I wonder how Floyd feels being beat by a woman for once. Ireland have achieved the unthinkable. They have defeated four times world champions New Zealand. Holding on, O'Sullivan's got a drive for that line, but Gabriella Chabot's the Olympic champion. Sonia O'Sullivan is beaten on the line. What a fantastic final lap, but what a response from Sonia O'Sullivan. A perfect Hello and welcome. My name is Kleena Foley and welcome to this month's Off the Bench. Coming up on this month's podcast, we speak to Katrina Jennings, the woman who finished last in the London Olympic Marathon in 2012. A very interesting interview where she discusses the psychological impact of losing that race. Our panel this month are Dick Hooper, Katrina McKiernan and Mary Cullen, who will be speaking to us about the future of marathon running in Ireland and what training is like for various athletes. Sinead Farrell also takes a look at a huge game changer this month, Catherine Switzer, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon as a numbered entrant in 1967. If you want to get in touch with us, you can mail us at offthebench at newstalk.com, get us on Twitter at newstalkfm or on Facebook. The podcast is available on newstalk.com or you can subscribe on iTunes. Don't forget to rate us. Now, without further ado, let's hear from our very first interview, the woman who wouldn't quit, Katrina Jennings. Our first guest today is Katrina Jennings. Welcome, Katrina. Thanks, Katrina. When I say the words August the 5th, 2012, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Um, gosh, probably massive disappointment. And um, even still, it, it, I can't really think of it in a happy way. Um, I, I still um, kind of uh, feel fairly just general rush of emotions when I think of it um, and not very positive emotions at that. And when we talk about August the 5th, 2012, it was the London Marathon, the Olympics, the last Olympics marathon. Um, tell us a little bit about the the run into the marathon, how you were feeling physically, how you qualified for it, where you were in yourself at the time. Okay, so I qualified in the Rotterdam Marathon in April 2015. 2012 and um, obviously I was absolutely delighted. Um, I didn't know I had qualified at the time. I had just um, posted the qualifying time. Four girls, as you know, had qualified and um, the decision to pick the three of us that ultimately got selected wasn't made until May. 
Um, in the meantime, I had, you know, I had assumed I had to, you know, continue to train as if I was going to be going to the Olympics. So um, training was going really well. I went to a couple of um, training camps in Portugal. And um, and you're an accountant by trade and you work in Dublin, even though you're from Donegal. That's right. And were yeah. you working or training full time or what did you do that year? Uh, I was, I was... Well, I was actually working full time up until um, two months before Rotterdam. I took two months off as unpaid leave, you know, just so that I could try and, um, I guess, just get a good lead up to Rotterdam. I went back to work for a couple of weeks after Rotterdam. But then I, you know, I, I agreed with the firm that I would take um, a, a you know a chunk of time off up lead, on the lead up to the Olympics just so that I could focus completely on training. Um, I work with PwC in Dublin, so they were you know really supportive and right. allowed me the time off to do that. And you didn't know, as you say, until May, because there were four of you that ran really very similar times. And in fact, one person got in and then there was two places between three of you. And I think only 20 seconds separated the three yeah. of you in the times that you'd run. So even that was a difficult thing to get in and qualify to get one of the three places, wasn't it? It was. And I was actually surprisingly close, if you think about how um, how, how close the, actually all four times were, because... Um, each of the four of us had run a marathon on different courses and we all finished within a minute of each other pretty much. So, you know, it was quite amazing. So it wasn't a very easy job for the selectors. And um, I know they had kind of set certain criteria, but it wasn't very clear Mm. and no one really knew exactly how it was going to be applied until the, the ultimate decision was made. So physically, how were things before, about a month before the Olympics or before the Olympics? Was this... This was the Olympic dream. You were going to you were going to London, and it was London family. I presume were they going? People, everybody you do was excited. Yeah, absolutely. It was so close, as you said. It was like the closest thing we would have had to a home Olympics. So everyone was heading over. My family, all my friends, work colleagues, and that. Um, and training was going, as I said, really well. Um, I posted a PB for the half marathon in June, um, and you know, continued to kind of progress from that. And uh, everything was going really well. Until um, like maybe week, 10 days before I started to get a niggle. As like any marathon runner will know, niggles are just par for the course in marathon running. You always get them. Um, You kind of have to make a wise decision as to whether or not it's a niggle or an injury because if you stopped for every niggle, you would never achieve your goals. Um, I, you know, hoped and prayed that it was a niggle and I continued to train through it. And, and were you training on an anti-gravity treadmill or there was talk at the time that you were? Yeah, I was using that, um, well, I was using that kind of on the, kind of closer to the time just because I wanted to continue to do the mileage, but just obviously, um, you know, not have the same impact. I wasn't, I, I didn't use it very much before London. I did use it a fair bit after London Um because it was a really good way to recover um, from the injury and I had distress fracture after London, so it completely took off all the weight, which was great. Um, so, so I was you able had, to you, use that. So you, you, but you knew you had this little, you had this niggle in your, was it in your foot? Yeah, my In foot, your foot, yeah. which foot? Yeah. My, my left foot. Left foot, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, in the days, even you're in you're in the Olympic Village, you know, you're, you're obviously doing a little bit of training. How are you feeling? Well, when you're tapering for the marathon, you're doing such little amounts of running it was fine you know I was getting through it taking it was taking off you know the training diary all the sessions were done I, like I was continuing to do the sessions I was getting physio you know obviously there was a really good um, team of physios over mm. there in London with us and you know they were just you know keeping it at bay and kind of getting massages every day on it which mm. was working fine and um, I had it strapped for the actual day of the race itself. So I just presumed that with the strapping, with, 
you know, all of the kind of adrenaline on the day. And I mean, generally speaking, if I had a niggle and I went and did, and did a race, I wouldn't even feel it because, you know, you, the, the adrenaline racing takes over and you just, it's kind of after the event that you might right. feel, you know, the and effect. Spe- of and, and talking about adrenaline, what's it like to wake up on a morning and know you're going out to race in the Olympics? It's just really exciting. Um, it was a terrible day. The weather was horrendous. It was a terrible day, but I didn't really care. You know, it was it was one of those things that because you're almost um, surrounded in a shroud of happiness that, you know, this is your dream is like actually being realised. And um, you're on the bus. I remember being on the bus to the course with effectively all the world's best marathon runners. And, um, you know, that in itself is just a really amazing feeling. Um and one I, you know, obviously always would have dreamed of achieving, but didn't actually think I'd get there. So, and on that bus, were you saying, "Keep calm"? What were you saying to yourself? How do you control yeah. the emotions? Well, I guess it's, you know, I suppose I was just saying it's just like any other race. And with a marathon, I don't think maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's just my opinion of the marathon, but I don't think you'd get as nervous as you do before other races because if you make a mistake at the start of a marathon, there's so much time to recover. I don't right. think there's that much pressure on you as, say, 10,000 metres or 5,000 where every, um, you know, you kind of can't really make any mistakes. I feel anyhow that you could, you can go through a bad patch in a marathon and, you know, come out the other side of it and still, um, you know, still run a good time. So at what point in the London Marathon did you know that something was wrong? Fairly near the start, I guess. Um, I don't remember the exact um time now I think you know your brain has probably got a good way of just blacking out you know negative memories but um, the course in London was a small loop followed by three larger loops and I remember I think the small loop went fine I think setting out onto the first larger loop I knew I was just thinking oh gosh this is sore I thought the strapping on my foot must have been just too tight because I was like I really kind of I was starting to get quite a sharp pain and it was felt like almost you know, the blood was trapped or something. Right. Um, so after the first, after the end of the first larger lap, I stopped because I was like, I'm just going to take off the strapping. It'll be much better. But as it turned out, that was probably the worst mistake I could have made because it got a whole lot worse after right. the strapping came off. Right. And um, yeah, from then on, it was um, was like pretty sore. And uh, <laughs> and did it get progressively worse and worse yeah. and worse? I mean, it was it was a day that I'll always remember because I covered it that day. I was there live. I remember, I remember there was thunder and lightning, I think, at the start of the mm-hmm. race and there was thunder and lightning at the end of the race. Um, and in, beha- in between, it's fair to say, you had a hellish time. The injury kicked in. Uh, the race, I think, was won by, it was won a new Olympic record, actually, in 2.23 by an Ethiopian. That's right. And the race started at 11 o'clock. And three hours and 20 minutes later, you were the only one still running. Um... Uh, there was a woman from East Timor had finished who was second last and she finished I think about 16 minutes before you and you were still out on the course you were the last person in the London Marathon and you were going to be the last finisher what what went through your mind I, I watched um, Reese Witherspoon recently have you seen the movie Wild I have actually yes, we, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's that very interesting internal dialogue mm-hmm. that she was going through when she was pushing her body to the limit mm-hmm. What what was the internal dialogue that was going on through your head for how many hours? Gosh, it was really, um, you know, all sorts of, like, it was really traumatic for me because I just was, I just couldn't believe it was happening. But um, all I could think of was just, I don't know, it was just a real 
really strong will to want to get to the end. And um, and I was actually, you know, like, this is going to sound really weird because obviously the crowd were amazing, but there was a time in the middle when I was just really wishing that everyone would just go home so that I could just finish <laughs> it because I was so embarrassed with the way, like, I mean, I I knew that I wasn't doing myself justice or my coach justice or any of, you know, any of the training that I had done, it was like it was pretty much irrelevant. And um, it, it was embarrassing. It was I was wearing the Irish vest and I felt that I was letting the country down. I was, um, you know, I, I was there was an awful lot of negativity in my head. But at the same time, and I, I'm not even sure if I can like actually vocalise it. But I just knew that I absolutely 100% wanted to finish it. And and I was going to do that. And I must say, in hindsight, like I know it, the crowd definitely, they definitely helped and they definitely, their encouragement definitely, you know, helped to, to cheer me on and get it was me a there. Very, it was, I had never seen it happen before in any race. Mm. The the crowd, and they were six and seven deep in, in parts of London, they had an amazing crowd for that marathon. Um, they stayed, they stayed to the very end, all the way around that loop. Mm. Um, and they were banging on the side of the hoarding. I mean, I often wondered even, do, do you remember things? Do you remember faces? Did you hear anything? Was there any point where you actually, you know, remember specific things about yeah. that time? I remember a couple of points where I knew where my, um, I knew the points where my family were going to be and my friends were going to be kind of scattered throughout the course. And um, I think, kind of knowing that helped because I knew, okay, well, I'll get to that point and then, you know, there'll be a friendly face and that will be nice. Um, I think that kind of helped. I remember at one point going under one of the bridges and like everyone was chanting my name and I was just wondering how on earth do they know my name, <laughs> you know, but I heard afterwards that, you know, the crowd were like, like were wondering what my name was so that they could really get behind me. And I suppose one of my... um uh, the memories that stand out the most is coming down the final straight when the entire crowd were banging on the yeah. boardings. I mean, that was just phenomenal. It you, had really, come, like, you had come around Buckingham Palace and right. going down that famous mall that we all see. Mm. You were crying, mm. you were limping, mm. you were struggling and you could actually, could you hear that? I could, yeah. It, was, it really was incredible, actually. Yeah, it was a great, I mean, it was a great experience for all the wrong reasons, yeah. you know. Um, but... At the same time, I suppose, oh, like sometimes I wish I could just see the positives in it, but because I know there were so many positives in that on that day, and I think you know the the reaction of the crowd and the the you know the the really really strong support from people that obviously had no idea who I was or anything about me. You know, it wasn't as if I was one of the famous athletes that mm. had come and you know something unfortunate had happened to them, but they were like. For example, if something happened, Bolt, everyone would still be behind him because he's such a you know phenomenal figure. Yeah. But I was nobody to these people, and they were still willing to you know get so much behind me like that. That I suppose when I look back now, I can see how incredible that was. Why do you think they did that? I suppose they probably acknowledged the struggle and like maybe they admired that I wasn't going to give up. Yeah. And was there any point, was there, was there any point did you, did that little voice in your head say, quit? Um, I don't remember now. I, I, I ran past my coach, um, Terry McConnell was coaching me and still is actually, but um, I ran past him at one point and I said, oh my foot is just, like, 
respect. And he was like, okay, just step off. And I was like, no, I can't. Really? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, like obviously Terry, it, it wasn't, I think he was thinking of, you know, how much damage could I do? Would I ever recover from it? You know, he was like, just, you know, if it's not going well, just, but, um, but I just knew it wasn't going to do that. And, um, like, no, I don't think I ever thought I wasn't going to finish it, actually. Had you ever quit in a race before? Um, I did, actually, in one cross-country race. But <laughs> obviously now I wouldn't mind if I could reverse the, the, the clock and take that back. But, oh, I'm so bad at cross-country. It's unbelievable. And uh, I don't know what, what, I think I had just, like, really fallen off the back of the group and I was going nowhere because I can't run cross country and right. uh, I just I wondered as well how far I mean, at what point in the race did you not see anybody else in front of you Um, it's probably fairly early on well yeah like I was running with the group for a while and uh, even though I could feel the pain I was like right you know I knew the pace wasn't too hot and I thought you know just you'll sit in with these it'll be grand you know just ignore it and um Actually, at one point I went past a, um, a sponge stand and, you know, the way that in the marathon they put water into the sponges, but <laughs> obviously it was, it, they put salt into some of them, which I didn't realise. And um, I got a sponge full of salt and drank that and that really threw me. And I suppose when I was struggling already and that happened, then yeah. it kind of just really threw me. So I kind of lost a bit of touch with that group at that point. Um, so it was kind of on my own. And then there was a number of athletes that started passing, you know, one by one kind of stragglers, I guess. And, um, you know, I suppose I always was thinking every time somebody came along, I was thinking, oh, I'll just stick in with this person. Like so much nicer to run with company. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't really. And then I didn't know. I mean, I guess I don't know how long I was running on my own after everyone had passed me. But um, I, I didn't know that everyone had definitely passed me until I maybe, was curious. You know, when did you know you were last? Probably, I would say. Um, it was um, somewhere on the loop anyway. Yeah, it was about probably maybe five miles before the end or maybe more um, that I realised that I was definitely last and yeah and you finished the race Patsy McGonigal uh, the Irish team manager who's from Donegal as well was there mm -hmm. to greet you um, but how how long had you been crying while you were running I mean that's not an even easy, easy thing to do I remember thinking that's <laughs> sorry that's, to breathe <laughs> yeah I mean how, when did you start to cry or do you even remember yeah funnily enough um, I think I went through a few stages of it that like it was actually when I was passing my friends or my family, that the emotion kind of got the better of me. And because they were still so much, like they were still so much behind me and really encouraging me. And I was just thinking, God, it's, I just feel so bad for them that, you know, I mean, they're still, I mean, I wouldn't have been the best friend over the last, on the lead up to it, because, you know, as when you're training that hard, you don't really get to spend as much time. You become quite, you know, selfish because mm. you have to make sure that your training comes mm. first. So, I mean, even that they were so behind me, I was, you know, really, really happy and really grateful for that support. And then to like totally let them down then, you know, when this is everything that you were sacrificing to mm. get to, you know, it was kind of. And like all athletes, when you cross the finish line, and unusually because you were the last person, as I said, you finished almost an hour after the winner. You were, I don't know, over 45 minutes or about that, slower than you would normally be. Um, 
the whole the world media was waiting actually because it was a very mm-hmm. unusual situation. Nobody had ever seen that where the crowd had waited and waited and brought somebody home with them. Uh, so you had to deal with the media. Um, and I wondered what did you do that night? How did you how did you detox from it? Um, so I went back to the Olympic Village and um, I guess the my foot just kind of got progressively worse because when I'd stopped. Um, actually running on it um, and you know kind of seized up almost so then when I started trying to walk I couldn't really walk on it at all so I went straight to the medical centre in the Olympic Village and um, then I then RT asked to do an interview with me so I went over to the studio in which was just outside the the Olympic Village um, in one of the kind of media studios mm, nearby mm. so I did that and um, because I guess the plan all along was to go into London to the Irish um, bar to yeah. meet all of my, you know, friends and family. I didn't want to let them down because I felt that, you know, they had, co- they had come to, to support me and I at least should go in and um, meet up with them. So um, after I got back from from RT, I just had a quick shower and went went in. And, uh, and how difficult was that? Well, I was on crutches and uh, <laughs> it wasn't... It was uh, a bit of a challenge because I don't think I'd actually ever been on. Well, maybe I had been on crutches before, but certainly not for a long time. And, um, you know, I so I got the tube in. But I mean, it was really nice at the same time to see people because I think, you know, even though all the athletes in the village are very supportive, everyone is there for a reason. And, you know, they're, you know, they are uh, focused on their own goals and their own events. So it was actually really nice to have um a good few friendly faces. You, I mean, you came home from London, obviously, afterwards. Um, and I often wondered, you had a stress fracture in your foot. That's right. Um, you avoided, you were in a boot for a while, were you in a cast? I was in a boot, um, yeah. So I was in the boot for about eight weeks. And after, after an experience like that, did you want to run again? Yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of the boot because all I wanted to do was just redeem myself. That was that was my entire motivation. I was dying to get back training so that I could um, run another marathon and run a really good time just to prove that, you know, I was. I, I'm not sure whether I wanted to prove it to myself or prove it to everyone else, but I, I needed in my own head to prove that I could run, you know, another really good marathon. So that was my, um, like I was cross training, even though I had the boot on, you know, the beauty of the boot is that you can take it off and throw on mm. a runner and jump on the cross trainer or um, on the anti-gravity treadmill. So um, so physically, that's that that is, it left an effect. But I often wondered emotionally, it must have, what was the effect of it? How yeah. did it affect you? It was, just, it was just, I suppose it's just really unfortunate because um, I would have thought it would have been the happiest experience of my life, but... Um, it was I was really raw over it, and actually never forget the next morning I woke up um, in the village, and I just I woke up, and you know the way I just thought was it a dream, and I realised it wasn't, and I just was just absolutely bald crying in my bed for about an hour. I'd say I just couldn't, like it was just so traumatic for me. I couldn't believe that it had actually happened, you know. Mm. And like I mean, to be fair to the. The Olympic Council, you know, they have a whole team of psychologists, sports psychologists in place that deal with, you know, your not alone your experience in the Olympics, but there's kind of a, a procedure in place when you come home to kind of help athletes to adjust. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I'd be kind of cynical about things like that, and I think, oh, I can, 
I don't really need any of that. I can deal with it myself. You know, I, I did go to the sessions and um, I mean, I'm sure they did help a bit, but I just couldn't, I couldn't really think of it. I couldn't talk to people. If someone like one of my friends, every time I met with her, she would like introduce me as her friend, the Olympian. And I'd just be like, oh my God, don't like, I'd be trying to get her to like not talk about it because I just didn't want to think or acknowledge it. So, um, like it's really, and that has been my feeling right up until, you know, fairly recently, um, where I think now I'm starting to realise that it probably, you know, it was in, even though it was not a good experience for me, that it was, there were certain things about it that, you know, I can't argue that, you know, about that weren't positive. Um, but like... How long did it take you before you could even talk to people about it without crying or without feeling emotional about it? Um, I'm like, even now, I'd be emotional about it. You know, yeah, I, I can see that. I wouldn't be 100% comfortable talking about it. Yeah. Um. So, but I am, I mean, I'm much better now. I, d- I don't really know in terms of timing, but um. yeah, it just wasn't, I just, I think I need, I think I need to run a really good international race just to, expel all the demons you know I think I think my motivation for um, sport and for trying to do well since London has all been because of what happened in London I mean at one point I realised that you know after I had the first stress fracture I got out of the boot I started you know training on the road running again and you know probably just did too much too soon my my eagerness to get back properly fit so I actually got a stress fracture in the other foot so I was back in the boot again back to square one and that kind of really set me back a lot more than the first one because my fight had kind of dwindled a bit at that point and I spoke to a couple of people and they were saying look your body just needs a break you need to just either you know maybe turn to triathlon for a while or you know just have a different focus because it'd be good for you so um, at the time my sister Sinead was making a comeback for rowing um, Your sister Sinead former, is also an elite athlete. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, so Sinead's a former world champion. She won the world championships in 2001. In rowing. In rowing. Um, her event was single skull, lightweight single skull, which wasn't an Olympic event. So she changed to double skull, which was an Olympic event. And she had a couple of very unfortunate and mm. near misses. She in was terribly unlucky not to get to the Olympics. And I often wondered, was that... Was that in your head that day when you were running, when you had that Olympic shot that yeah. she never got? It was actually, yeah. And um, I suppose when I actually qualified for the Olympics, I actually felt guilty because I knew that she, she deserved it so much more than I did. Um, but I mean, I, I was just lucky and I was fortunate enough to do, I mean, to be maybe in the right place at the right time. But I always felt, and you know, I, I suppose... You can't really say to someone, oh God, it's a pity you didn't qualify yeah, and now yeah. I'm here because it's a bit like, you know. But when you had such a traumatic experience, did was Sinead not somebody that you would have been able to talk to about it? I, I thought maybe possibly she could have been the one person that you might have been able to talk to about it. Yeah, n- not really. I didn't or did you really not talk. want to kind of burden anybody with it? Yeah, I didn't really want to talk about it at all. Mm, yeah. Mm. So... You said you, you had this motivation. One of the things that came out of that awful experience was you wanted to try and represent Ireland at some level again and do it successfully. And one of the things you did, which people wouldn't know, is that you thought about becoming an Olympic rower. So tell us about that. That's right. So um, I spoke to Sinead about it, actually, and um, I thought, um, you know, will I give it a crack? 
um, she was saying, absolutely, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't. It's really tough, but the, she was like, you know, actually part of the training for rowing because it's, um, you do a lot of um, lifting weights and strength and conditioning work. Um, lifting weights is actually one of the things that would improve bone density. So she said, actually, probably be perfect. It'll work on your fitness, take your mind off. Mm you know, running for a while. And, and Irish rowing, Irish rowing is one of the sports that has this talent transfer system. So it looks for talented athletes in one sport that might become, that might actually have the potential to become good rowers. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, clearly I had the cardiovascular system that would, you know, so that was one box ticked. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't realise myself how unbelievably technical the sport is. And um, I joined commercial in Island Bridge and um, got myself a skull and, um, so like a boat for one person and um, um, began training there. It was going really well. I saw like massive improvements really quickly as you would, you know, for any kind of novice. But I guess I had the background in the phys- the cardiovascular side of the ticked. So that was great for me. But um, And when I, was this? Was this in 2013? That yeah, following year? that was 2013. It was probably around March. I went down and um, joined the club. Right. Um, initially, I thought it was only going to be for a short period and then I spoke to Sinead and thought, yeah, you know what, maybe I'll give it a go of it. And you got onto the Irish squad, didn't you? I did the trials, yeah. I was involved in the Irish setup for a while. Um, they, they At the time, they actually had it set up so that there was a um, an elite coach for each of the provinces. And Niall O'Toole, who's a, a former World world champion, Olympian, yeah, Olympian, Olympian. Um, was coaching in Dublin, or the Leinster region, which was amazing. I was so delighted that he was the coach because I knew that, you know, he was going to like he knew exactly what it took to become a world champion and an Olympian and you know he was going to impart all that knowledge on us and it was a really great setup. There was um I think there was four girls and two guys or maybe there was there was probably more but generally typical speaking they were the that was the numbers that would show up to and the And you training. got through the Irish trials, you got selected. Yeah, so I got selected for the Irish for the squad. squad, yeah. And what did that mean in terms of, did you move? And do you have to move to Cork at some point? So initially I was training in, in the Leinster region with Niall, but then um, I was encouraged to move to Cork because that was that's still where the, you know, the centre of excellence is and they have all the facilities there. They have a really, you know, it's a really good state-of-the-art gym, fully equipped with all the rowing-specific yeah. um, weights and um, rowing machines and everything. And um, obviously it's on the lake or the river there, so it's... Um, it's great access. It's very easy to train and they have, as I said, all the facilities. So, yeah, I moved to Cork in um, June of 2015. No, that's 14. this year, 2014. 2014. Yeah. Moved to Cork and in 2014. Moved to Cork, yeah. And um, that was really tough, I must say. And were you say. training full time? I was training, I was training, no, I was working um, five, four days over a four day week over five days so I kind of just cut down the number of hours I was working but I was you know with the same company and, the same and they you transferred to Cork basically transferred to the Cork office and so I kind of moved my life down to Cork which some might think was a bit erratic but um, I was so you know focused on you know getting to Rio that I was like right it's worth it I don't care but um, I guess when I got down there and even looking back now I'm not sure whether I went down too soon or whether, I don't know, maybe I should have gone down earlier. But um, I guess the while the setup down there is brilliant, they are probably limited in their coach, coaching resources. Mm. So the coach really focuses on the boat that is either qualified or going to qualify for the Olympics. So it's really, um, 
it's really quite high level. So, you know, I was kind of um, coming behind trying yeah. to like really you know, catch up. You were up. playing a technical catch up. I was playing a technical, technical catch up. Playing catch-up. I probably needed more coaching. Mm. But then at the same time, it's not fair to say that yeah. because I was in a high performance setup. And obviously the high performance coach who um, is coaching Sinead now. And Sinead is, re- you know, he, she's really and Sinead um, has qualified for you. Yeah. About him, yeah. And she, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's uh, well... The boat has qualified technically, but yeah. um, hopefully Sinead and, and Claire will, you know, get to So how long did you stay in that programme? Uh, for six months. And when did you decide, and was it a hard, when did you decide not to, to leave it? And, and that must have been a hard decision it was as well. A, yeah, that was a hard decision um, because I suppose, um, you know, it was more just, it was more than just leaving rowing. It was all the f- memories of, you know, I'm not going to be able to dispel London now. I'm not going to have a chance, you know, I'm not going to get to go to Rio. And I had this like dream of going to Rio on a boat with Sinead, which would have been amazing. Um, but, you know, it was, so it was kind of all the realisations of that coming down, coming at me. And um, uh, I suppose ultimately I made the decision because I knew that I wasn't going to get where I needed to get to in the time I had based on the coaching and the facilities that were available to mm. me personally. Mm. And I suppose I needed to, I needed to just take a step back. And Sinead was really instrumental in helping me to make that decision. And, you know, I was really grateful to her because I spoke an awful lot to her at the time. Sinead has actually since moved to Cork, but she wasn't there when I was there, which is unfortunate because I think if she was, I would have had a different experience right. as well. She probably yeah. would have looked out for me a bit more. So you passed each other going up and down the motorway. And yeah. the She's got back down there and you've come back up. There. Exactly. So yeah. when did you leave that programme exactly? In November of last, last year. year. Yeah. Um, but you haven't given up on wearing the Irish vest again. Yeah. So when I gave up rowing, I thought, you know what, that's it. I'm just going to enjoy my life. Um, you know, go out, not care about training, blah, de, blah, enjoy myself. Watch X Factor. <laughs> yeah. Eat a few, eat a few uh, twirls. Um, make up for all the time I've, or everything I've missed out on or so I thought. Um and I did it for a few months and I realised that I wasn't really all that I thought it was cracked up to be at all. <laughs> so I, I, and I really missed, like I was kind of still staying fit because, you know, I would anyway. I kind of need the adrenaline rush of doing some sort of sport. But I decided that I was only, I, I went back to my training group actually in Dublin and I said I was only doing it for fun. So the guys I ran with were laughing at me saying that I was going to give a new definition to the term fun runner. <laughs> but, um, and so for how long did you, was it fun? Just only fun? <laughs> it was fun until I decided, um, it was fun until I ran a couple of half marathons actually earlier this year. And I did like fairly, like, I mean, they were okay time wise. I did like 81 minutes or something, but like it was fairly crap in comparison to what I knew I should have been running. And it kind of just annoyed me when I was running it that I was like, this is really bad. I should be doing better than this. And I just, I had also kind of come to the point as well where I was kind of sick of, not sick of going out, but you know, I just realised that it wasn't, it wasn't as great as what I thought I was missing out on. Um, So I kind of thought, you know what, I'll just start back training a bit more seriously. I don't have to cut out everything. You know, I don't have to be as rigid or as, um, as strict on myself as I would have been if I was, you know, training for some really, you know, important goal, but that I'd have a nice balance, g- give myself the opportunity to race well, but still, you know, not have to, you know, miss out on all the events that were happening. Yeah. So I kind of, I think I actually f- struck a fairly nice balance for probably the summer. And um, 
then again, you know, I suppose it's just a vicious circle. Once you start running well, you kind of want to run better and the kind of ball starts rolling again, starts picking up a bit of speed so or momentum. Um, so I had spoken to Terry McConnell, my coach, about, you know, what my goal would be for the year. And we kind of thought, you know, it, Terry said, you know, the World Championships 50k is on this year. It's the inaugural um, World Championships in 50k. So it might be a good one to do, might suit you. Um, because, you know, I know I'm obviously a, a good endurance athlete and um, even in the marathons that I've run, my second half would always be faster than my first half leg. And I would, you know, I know that I can you or I would the, hope that I have. You have the, the engine, you have the endurance. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that'd be great. And um, so I think that was great because it kind of gave me a bit of a focus. But then um, Athletics Ireland hadn't fully decided whether or not they were going to send anyone. So it's kind of, I suppose, it's difficult to train for something that you don't know whether you're going to go to or not. But um, I was just doing my regular training anyhow. And then I got a or Terry got a call um, like probably three weeks ago now, six weeks before the actual championships, which are on on the 4th of December. 4th of December. Yeah, that, um, you know, they had decided to send a team. So um, they, I think, had decided myself... Um, Gary, Gary O'Hanlon and Barry Minnock but I'm not sure now I, I think uh, I know Barry had been injured so I'm not sure if right. all three are going but But you're definitely going I'm definitely going yeah so I'm delighted I'm really excited about having an opportunity to wear the Irish vest again and uh, hopefully um, do myself and the country proud this time Tell me about when you were small your your dad obviously you, you did triathlon when you were younger both yourself and Sinead and your dad you told me is was just a you know very avid cyclist when it was neither popular or, or, or profitable. Um, as a little child, who were the sports people like? What was your Olympic dream? You know, most of us we see something on the TV at the Olympics and we think, I want to be that or I want to do that. What started the Olympic dream for you? Um, I don't know. I think like Daddy w- w- became a bit obsessed with cycling around the time of um, Sean Roach and Stephen Kelly I remember actually he got his first Peugeot bike and uh, um, he was obsessed with that and that kind of um, because I suppose he was so involved in it then we mm. myself and you know my other two sisters started getting involved in it I don't know that I had a particular um, Olympic idol but I remember you know every year or every four years when the Olympics were on watching Michelle Smith or you know the boxers Michael Cruz and Wayne McCullough and um, like we just became so behind, you know, involved in it and behind it. I mean, I guess, I guess every family does. But um, what did you think? What did you think going to London that the Olympics was going to was going to make you feel? Um, I suppose it's just maybe just realizing a dream that I never thought I would be good enough to do because I suppose when when I you know would have thought of Olympians, I would have. You, you, I suppose when you think of Olympians, you think of the champions, really be honest about it you don't necessarily about think about the people that are making up the numbers or that's certainly what I would have been thinking of when I was a child um, so I probably I just thought I couldn't believe that I was part of this elite group of people that um, you know are actually the best in the world even though I know sometimes in certain countries like Kenya where they have 50 odd people qualifying for the marathon but only three can go then you know, it's, yeah, it's and I know, I know. At the time, you said you felt you'd left people down, and I know I, I noticed some criticism saying, "Oh, if she was injured, she shouldn't have run," and you know there was some kind of nasty stuff afterwards. And I often wondered, 
you know, what did you feel yourself? What was your own sense of yourself after it? What, how did you have to vindicate yourself? Did you have pride in finishing it? Where did where do you think you are with it now? Well, yeah, I know there was a lot of n- nasty comments and that really hurt me, to be honest. Um, I guess, as I said, you know, at the start, I fully believed that I could run the race. I didn't think, I mean, I don't know if I could have made a conscious decision to go into that race and run it the way I did, you know, knowing what was going to happen. I don't think I would have done it, even though looking back on it, I'm kind of, you know, I'm glad I had the opportunity and I did it. I certainly wouldn't have put myself forward for that. So um, I, you know, I mean, people will say, oh, you know, she's maybe, I don't know, not being truthful or whatever. But I genuinely, honestly thought that I was going to get through that race. And it wasn't that maybe it would take me a long time to recover after it. But I certainly thought that I would have no problem getting through it. And um, like, I appreciate that you know, if I knew I was going to be injured that maybe I should have stepped off, but I actually didn't think it was that bad. So, you know, like I personally, I don't have to justify the decision to myself. I know at the time I made the right decision for me because I knew all like the facts that I had. But, you know, obviously people are always going to have their own opinion and you can't control that. So um, that's kind of how I deal with it now um, at the time I was really I was upset and you know I'd kind of said it to my boyfriend at the time you know oh, this is really like awful seeing these nasty comments but and I guess he helped me because he was just like totally you know saying oh they're just jealous or you know he'd always think of something that would make me feel better about it which you know mightn't have necessarily been true but I suppose it worked so um you were part of an elite group of, of women that day. There was 118 women started that marathon. 11 didn't finish it at all, including Lorna Kiplicat. Yeah, and I think um, one of the British girls... Um, um, That's right, name? yeah, the British number one didn't finish mm, it Yama as well. Or what's her name? Yes, yeah, Mara. Ma- yeah, yeah, Marianne Moore, I think. Yeah. So the British number one and, and Lorna Kiplicat, neither of them finished it. Two, two of the big names. As yeah, well. and I think actually Mara had... I think it ended up she had a stress fracture as well afterwards because um, I met her in the village afterwards and she was on the boot as well and in a boot as well. Right. So, so did you take do you, do you take do you take pride? Do you take a little bit of what you said redemption out of that that you didn't quit? I'm really glad I didn't quit, um, and I'm I know that I've no regrets on the day because I did the best I could have done in that situation, and I'm glad that I finished because. Um, I don't know, I suppose just for myself more than anything that I didn't, that I didn't just throw the towel in when it got tough. Katrina Dennis, that seems a great place to finish. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Thanks, Kleena. Coming up, our panel will discuss the future of Olympic marathon running in Ireland. Welcome back. I'm joined by three people who know more than most about Irish marathon running and also about the difficult battle it is to achieve your Olympic dream. Katrina McKiernan is here, a four-time World Silver Medalist, and in 1997-98, one of the top three marathon runners in the world. Dick Hooper is a three-time Olympian and a three-time Dublin marathon champion and record holder, and a man who's run 212. But importantly, he's also a man who's now helping Irish women to improve their marathon standards. And Mary Cullen is here, former American College's 5,000 metre champion, European indoor medalist. Um, and the Irish reigning 5,000 metre champion and somebody who's hoping to go to the Olympics next year at a shorter distance. First of all, 
we talked to Katrina Jennings about her Olympic experience and I wondered what your reaction all of you was. Uh, some of you were in London. I think, Dick, were you in London that day and what was your reaction to, to how, watching her perform that day? Yeah, I was there. Um, my memory of it is waiting for her to come around um, after about six miles and she came and, and she took so long to come that uh, we wondered had she started at all. Um, and she was very much tailed off when she arrived, and it was obvious that she was uh, in some something was wrong, let's say, and she wasn't. She was running so slowly that there was there was a, there was obviously a problem. Um, and was it three or four laps that day? I can't remember, but they, we certainly saw laps, them yeah. about four times anyway. And obviously, each time uh, it was a bit sadder. Um, so you're you're trying to work out in your head. Well, what's wrong here? Is she injured or is she? very badly ill or you know what is the problem um, and to this day it remains a bit of a mystery I know she as it, as it turned out she had an injury I think it was on her um, her heel of wasn't course, it yeah, her plantar yeah, fascia yeah, um, now it, it brought it brought a, a lot about a lot of analysis let's say afterwards you know as to how badly injured was she in the build up to it mm-hmm. should she have started um, should she have put herself through what she put herself through that day? But as a, as a runner myself and a person who never dropped out of a marathon, I can understand her stubbornness and uh, having started the journey uh, to finish it off. Um, Katrina, what did you think? Did you have similar feelings? Yes, um, like that when you're in a race and it was the Olympics and she had you know prepared for it as best as she possibly could and she was over there and... Uh, it's a hard decision to make like you know you think maybe when you get started in the race that you can block everything out but Mm. obviously Mm. Katrina wasn't able to do that on the day and um, you know I'd say that was her her idea going into the race that okay this is the Olympics there's going to be a great atmosphere I have a nickel but hopefully it'll not you know take from me doing my best I'm sure that's what she was saying to herself but um, I suppose the mind took over then uh, when the pain got so bad for her and um, but you know these things happen and um, she you know it's going to take her a little bit of time to get over but you know my advice to her was is that you know these things happen and it's part of the game and just to try and block it out from her mind now and focus on what she wants rather than thinking of uh, what happened. And Mary you were there that day Uh, you had a very good friend uh, uh, running in it as well but not from Ireland. Yeah we were over there Um, my friend Kim Smith was running for New Zealand so um, and obviously we're going to support the three Irish girls Ava, Linda and Katrina. Um, Yeah like kind of Dick said you knew something was off obviously when she went by us she didn't look fluid or anything like that you know but at the same time I think as the athlete you're never going to not try you know it's the Olympic Games you're going to put yourself out there no matter what Um, like Desi Davida from the US she was injured as well I think she had a femur stress fracture going into it and um, like that people were kind of like oh should she race should she not and she did you know but she kind of knew herself that she probably wasn't going to make it and she didn't, she didn't make it past five miles. And, you know, they could have replaced her as well. But, mm. you know, it's the Olympic Games. She can still call herself an Olympian. Obviously not the way you want. Mm. But I think as the athlete, it's very difficult to make that, that mm. choice um, if you are hurt going in. Do you, do, um, do you think that uh, the decision should be made by Athletics Ireland or their medics? Or, you know, they cleared her to run, I think, at the time. Um... 
Yeah, I think so. Like in a way, it definitely, I think for me, you know, I remember even back in 2007 at the World Championships in Osaka, I was carrying a bit of an injury going in, but, um, you know, I didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. It was only 5,000 metres. I thought I'd get through it. And I did get through because it was only 5,000 metres. It's a lot different to um, a stress, I mean, a, a marathon. But I ended up having a stress fracture in my fibula and I, I did. I got through the 5K. But the medical team knew about the injury, but we managed it as best we could. Yeah. Yeah. And we got through the race. So in a way, I think, yeah, like, you know, I know it's very difficult maybe for the medical staff to say, no, you're not running and for the athlete to just be okay with that. But I think maybe like the coach as well with the coach and the athlete together to maybe try and make the decision with the medical staff Mm. is the way to go. Um, Because I think the athlete is going to be very emotional in that situation. So it's hard to maybe see to see clearly yeah, you know what's to, best kind of emotion. yeah and and Katrina obviously still says look she felt she was fit enough but she hadn't she had no idea really until she started to run the extent of the injury and she actually stopped and took a you know bandage off her foot at one point Dick we're uh, less than a year from Rio where uh, where is Irish women's marathon running at this present time and you know what are you thinking about when you look ahead at Rio as to who might be running first then well at the moment there's uh, three women qualified <coughs> Fanula Britton, um, Lizzie Lee and Breach Connolly. Um, Breach is the slowest of the three on time at 2.37. So whoever else wants to get onto that team is going to have to run faster than 2.37. Mm. It looks like the Olympic Council want to have three Irish athletes there. They set it a time which is relatively achievable for a lot of athletes. But so far, interestingly, only three have actually got the time. Um so, but that that time is very interesting, Dick. Because mm. I mean, the interesting thing is the qualifying time for London was two th- two hours thirty seven, I think, for the Irish women, um, and we had four women uh, battling for three places. And Maria McCambridge was the unlucky one not to get picked that time. And there was only twenty seconds between three of them actually. Mm. Um, this time, the 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 AI have made the the I think the international standard is two forty two, but uh, Athletics Ireland have made it two forty four. So there's an argument that that's a terribly soft, easy time. And what if, if you know, six or seven women get it? How are they going to make the decision then? What's, what's your impression of the, the actual qualifying I don't have a, qual- a problem with the time at all because I think if you uh, put a time out there that people think they can achieve, then a lot of people should be going mm. to achieve it. It's, it's a good thing to say I got the Olympic qualifying time uh, for starters. So as I say, Bridges' time of 2.37 is now the qualifying time. There's yeah. no point in going and running 2.42 or 2.43 you're not, you're not going anywhere yeah. uh, so you have to run 2.37 similar to the men the men's time was 2.17 but now the third fastest qualifier has run 2.15.35 so that's it. the time mm-hmm. to, you have yeah. to beat now if you want to get it. and I think that's great there's an old adage in business that if you want to hit your sales targets make them easy because everybody wants to blitz them then yeah. rather than putting them out there too hard and people just shy away and say you know, I can't get there because it's too, too difficult. Yeah, well, it, it's it's an, it, it is arguably a very soft what's called in athletics terms a soft qualifying time. Katrina, yeah. you ran uh, the Irish record seventeen years ago. Um, is it two twenty two twenty three? Yes, yeah, still stands. Yes. seventeen years yeah. later, and there's a big debate about you know the gap between that. We only have had two other women ever break 2.30 and that includes Anya Sullivan. How how did you achieve that standard? People often look at it and think, 
how did you get that time? How were you so good? Yeah, I remember John Tracy saying after I ran it, he said he wouldn't want to be having a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I often wonder myself and actually Patrick, my son, he was, uh, he's getting a little bit into the running and that and uh, he wanted to know what time did I run each mile and, and I think I calculated it was like, 5.35 or something like that average something 5.35 yeah. to 5.36 per mile so I often wonder myself these days how I managed it but in fairness like in with athletics or I suppose at any sport it's not just one thing it's a package and you know I'm, you didn't take the American route the collegiate route as it was at the time you stayed here yeah, you did yeah. a lot of your running on the golf course at home yeah, in Cavan yeah. were all those things a factor yeah, for you I, I, I was lucky enough I was blessed to have that the package as I call it like the, the talent the commitment the dedication the ability to endure the pain you know to there comes a point in a race where it gets uncomfortable and very painful and I have and had the ability to endure that and to block it out of my mind and um, you know there's also a little bit of luck involved in it uh, but I had all of that I don't and think there was any luck in <laughs> but you know the preparation the training went well for you know when I started doing marathon training actually when I started competing or you know realised that I had talent for running that, that was something that I was going to do um, I went to Trinity College to get tested on the treadmill and I remember the very first time I went they told me that I was made for marathons and you know I did all the other stuff the cross country the the short track races uh, for a few years until I was 27 and then I started doing the marathons and I actually felt the marathon training so much easier than the cross country training or the track really? training although it was longer then I was just more in my comfort zone mm. rather mm. than you know the short fast stuff. and I remember Berlin your debut in Berlin which I think was the 11th fastest at the world and it was the fastest at the time the fastest uh, uh, marathon debut by a woman ever uh, it was 2.23.4 I think Yes, uh, you didn't even look tired after it. No, that was just probably one of my best races ever. And I remember the last 10K, I was just hopping off the road. It was <laughs> 32 minutes or something, over 32 minutes or something like so, that. So, I mean, 10K. physiologically, Dick, she was gifted, clearly. You know, she oh, had a gift. She, she was sensational, really. You know, yeah. like she, her her Irish record is probably one of the, the great Irish records out there. And it's in, in world standards now. When you see how far ahead she is of the present posse of Irish women, um, and how far she ha- is ahead of even Kerry May or Tanya in, in yeah, terms of yeah. second and third. I mean, it's a f- fantastic time um, and a great tribute to her. But the interesting Kerry May thing was 228, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the interesting thing I watched uh, in Katrina in her development was she came with this great background of cross country mm. and, and mm. Uh, track running and all that. But in, in, when she went to the road, she'll, I know she'll jump down my neck now. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a great road runner. Of the three, um, the road seemed to be the one that gave her the least success, uh, I thought. But the training changed her phenomenally. Uh, and, and as she improved as a, as a road runner and a marathon runner, it probably affected your, your other stuff a little bit, your, your, your uh, track and your cross country yeah. in the sense that, you know, once you change your gait, yeah. she's, you get a different response from the road than yeah. you do from the country. You flowed, she flowed across the yeah. cross country, you flowed but across the But when she made her mind up that she was going to the marathon, then she got this fantastic transition couple of years where she was so fresh and so fast coming from all that background mm-hmm. of world class mm. cross country running and stuff like that that she brought that and the great innocence of arriving in the marathon not knowing what to expect or mm. whatever if you're well prepared 
mm. and and you bring that innocence to it. It's a lovely little amalgamation of of uh, armory to to, to, to hit bring the ground with. You. And Mary, yeah. you haven't taken the marathon on yet. Are you hoping maybe five or ten uh, for Rio to qualify? But we were talking earlier. You you you've got this thing that Fanula Britain has had people saying to you, "Oh, go move to marathon, move to marathon. You should be doing marathon. You might suit marathon." You've had that, and you've also because you went to college in America, you're very friendly with a lot of the top and some of the top American uh, marathon runners at the moment, Molly Huddle and people like that. What 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 have what where do you come from, and what do you think about marathon running when you're looking at it now? Um. I would love I would love to have gone to the marathon already. Um I think everybody knows I've had one or two injuries. So I think that has sometimes put me off maybe thinking about a marathon. But then like Katrina said there a little bit, funny enough, I've kinda of gone away from like too high of an intensity sort of, you know, that you need maybe for the track and I've had a longer period injury free. So in a way, I'm kind of like, oh, is my body able to handle the longer stuff or the not quite maybe intense stuff a little bit better? Um, the distance scares me. 26.2 mile does a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Um, so much can happen and there's so many variables. But there's also a part of it that really excites me as well about hopefully trying one. Um, I think just, you know, I, I had Achilles surgery in 2014, so... Ideally, I would have liked to try a half marathon mm. and then would have thought about Rio a marathon. But just between whatever, one thing and another, it hasn't happened. So unfortunately, a marathon won't happen between now and Rio, but and you've definitely seen, afterwards. You've seen the American women making quite a lot of strides and Dick will have noticed as well. Like they're able, they're, they're running 225s, they're running sub 230. What do you think that they're doing in America that's different than here? Um, yeah, like, you know, the American trials... Uh, are going to be held now in February and you need to run the qualifying time to just get into the trials is 2.37 um, and I think 75 maybe for a half marathon. So obviously, like Dick said, that's the standard. So you're obviously going to try and hit that standard to be able to get a chance of going to the Olympics. Um, I think the Americans as well, that's a little bit different to us at home. They're starting to train together a little bit. They're starting to like come together as teams and I think... We don't maybe do that as much here. And I like I'm guilty of it myself. I do a lot of my running myself. Um, but I think if you're around people like when I was in Providence, I was around Kim, I was around Molly. Success breeds success. Mm. Um, so I think that's maybe where we're falling down a little bit in comparison yeah, to the American groups and train together. I think so. Like, especially, you know, a lot of the like Shalane Flanagan now has gone off training for the Olympic trials and yeah. one of the top Americans and Amy Hastings, who was part of the Providence group, is now gone and tra- train training with Shalane in her build up as well. And the mm. two of them are vying for a spot on that American team for so Rio. Pushing each other. But yeah, they're still going to train together. And they're still going to compete against yeah, each other. Yeah, but when they stand on the line, they're, they're going to both want to make that team. That place. Exactly. Dick, yeah. you're involved with, with something. Uh, tell us about what the marathon mission is and, and what do you think it started to achieve? Well, Marathon Mission was uh, formed about six or seven years ago with the view to raising the standards of, of Irish marathon running. And men and women. Men and women, yeah. And um, encourage more people to, to participate in the event, more suitable candidates, let's say. There was a period during the 90s and after Katrina's period uh, of time there, a dominance, um, where people just didn't compete in the event. And, and whatever about the women, I mean, the men, there was one year where only one man broke 225, yeah. which was 
crazy stuff. Um, and it was really just that they weren't prepared to put in the work and, 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 and put all their eggs in the marathon basket and try for, you know, the glory that that, that, that would bring. Um, so we, we tried to hern in the Dublin City Marathon, uh, Jim Ockney, Eugene Coppinger in particular, uh, threw their weight behind it. Mm. And myself, Jim Davis, Theresa McDade got involved and we um, we formulated this idea of trying to encourage people, suitable people, to, to veer towards the marathon. And do they train together? How does well, they work? did initially, you know, but, but it, it, it would be wrong to say that it's particularly successful now. I think the seeds that it sowed at the time were very good. We got, um, well, I don't say we, but I mean, I think it was part of the package that four women qualified for London last yeah. time round, and it looked like that, that there was something serious was going to come out of that, and I think uh, what you're seeing going on in the men's at the moment now is 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 a follow-on to that because some of the people who have qualified for uh, Rio next year are very committed marathon mission people and get a yeah. fair bit of backup from marathon mission in terms of uh, training and financial aid and stuff like that. Um, so there is a momentum there now, and you know a rising tide lifts all ships. When when one athlete sees somebody that they think that they're remotely or that they're better than achieve something, then they're inclined to go away and say, well, I'm going to do what he or she is doing. Yeah. So you've got a group of men now who are down 215, mm. 218, which is a big jump in the last few years. But the, we, we're just we're saying we've 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 only ever had three women under 230. So mm. obviously, Fanula Britton, Lizzie Lee are not far off that. Um, that would be the, I suppose, Katrina, even looking at it, would you think that's the barometer that we should be looking towards the 230? Oh, now? absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, but as Dick was saying there and, and Mary, I think if it's a thing, if we could get more of our athletes to train together, I think they would spur each other on and encourage each, each other and get more out of themselves. Because um, I know I did a lot of my training at home in Cavan on the golf course for the cross country. But when I started doing the marathons, I moved to the big smoke yeah. <laughs> and I trained with people all the time. And did I had you? Company. Because I always had that vision of you being a lone trainer. You didn't for No, the no, when I started the marathons, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because look, you were going out for two and a half hour runs and doing 70 minute threshold runs and stuff like that. And it was great to have the company, although I would keep monitored, to, you know, with, with the heart rate monitor and all of that. But still, I had people to train with and it was a new lease of life for me. It was like, it was like heaven because I had the company, and I think it's much much easier when you have somebody to train with. And I think in general, even not just for marathon training, but for cross country, for track, if we could get more of our athletes training together, it would make it much more enjoyable for them. The the one like you, they do, like you know, yeah, Kenny, Ethiopia, yeah, places as like a, that. they do train a group. <laughs> the one that I think that that almost disproves all of that, if you like, is this woman called Sinead Diver, um, who uh, really, I suppose, describes herself as an accidental athlete. She, she's a, a, a woman from Mayo who, who moved to Australia and a couple of years ago started to run competitively for the first time ever. She was a PE teacher um, and then was working in IT and she's a mum of two and uh, she came out and she ran 2.34 in Melbourne I think two years ago, qualified for the Australian team and uh, ran world championships for Australia last summer. So how can somebody like that who, if you like, doesn't have a background that any of us or any of you have can can come out and run two thirty four. I mean, did any did, did any of you did you what did you think of that, Mary? Did you kind of even did it come under your radar? Yeah, no. Obviously, I've I've seen a few interviews with her with Sinead and stuff like that, and um, how she was maybe going to run for Ireland or Australia. She had that yeah, um, that's right choice yeah. to make. I think 
you know, you can say, oh, she'd no background in running, but like no background at all in running or, you know, you still probably, she probably still had some sort of background in running yeah. to be able to come and run 2.34. Um, but I also think, I don't know, like with the marathon, if you, I think if some people have, you know, a, a good ability in running and you can put the training in, like Dick said, put all that hard work in. I think the marathon is an event that can you can reap the rewards in the event. It is a little bit different to the track. So for someone like Sinead, if she was able to to do that, you know, if she was able to put in that load of training, um, you know, I can't see why she wasn't able she to run 234, yeah, you know. Have, she could obviously she have could a natural be, endurance. I was going to say, she might yeah. be a bit like Katrina as well. Like, yeah. obviously Katrina's phenomenal, but 222 is, yeah. like, crazy fast. Um, you know, even as an Irish athlete now, trying to think about even getting close to 2.22. But honestly, she had a hidden talent. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, that's know? what I was going to say. Yeah. She, is, is, is it like Sinead ever exactly had this natural aptitude that she just didn't know she had? Maybe Katrina, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like, and um, okay, she was a PE teacher, so there was something there as yeah. regards sport. Yeah. And, you know, she was fresh as well. Like, she didn't have much mileage on, in her legs. And, uh, you know, she decided that she was going to do a marathon and she prepared for it and she was able to run that that time. Um, who knows, maybe maybe she didn't have, as a youngster, maybe she was a, we don't know, maybe yeah. she's a college or whatever and she didn't have the package, as I would call it. She didn't, she wanted to have the other life and she didn't have the commitment and, and the dedication. Australians, yeah, the Australians could have given her the support system once she ran the time as well, of course, too. You know, yeah, yeah. Like maybe if she had been doing it 10 years ago she might not be running now so yeah, uh, yeah. we talked earlier about the about the standard for for uh, Rio um, and uh, Dick your point is you know it's a very very achievable standard some people say it's soft but that's a good thing in your opinion the reality is we could have five six seven women who run sub 244 so the dilemma again is going to come to how do you make the selection what are the criteria if you were if you were picking the team, what do you think is the fairest system to pick the three people who should go, or is is it it's possible? very hard to go beyond the three fastest? You know, you, you, otherwise you're going to be involved in a right old row. Um, in 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 our in three Ireland, fast, three fastest in Olympic year. What if somebody runs a really fast time the year before, but they could be injured by the time Rio comes around? Uh, okay, you're you're bringing in the exception rule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I mean, if you look at where we're at now, I, I don't see a selection dilemma for for the Irish women at this stage. To be honest with you, there's two women really? have have put themselves out there, um, Fanuel and Lizzie, Lizzie, and they're way ahead of the posse. And if anyone can dream up two two or three women who are going to run faster than them at this stage, then um, they're they're fair operators. There could be a, a row over the third spot. I I would yeah, imagine. Yeah. Um, and, and probably where the row will, will develop is that who, somebody might come in and beat Breeze's time, but they might beat it very late in the day. Yeah. So in beating it in May or late April, yeah. they'll be fresh Are you going enough to produce again another August, one in know? August? Yeah. Um, there's, there's stuff like that to be considered. But just going back to your last little debate, if, if, if I may, there's a load of Sinead divers around the world and in Ireland, and they're in Are every they? parish, like every potential Olympic champion. They're in every parish everywhere. And it's just a case of, of encouraging them and, mm. and, and uh, bringing them out. Like, for example, the women's mini marathon brings in a lot of women who would have given up sport in their late teens and had a good time in their early 20s. And then when, they, when life becomes 
complicated later on. They're looking for their release and suddenly they find find that uh, they're good at running and they develop on that. I always recall back in the first Olympic marathon in 1984, Joy Smith from UK was 46 and she ran something like 227, 228. And her teammate was a lady called Priscilla Welsh, who took up the sport, I think, at 36 or 37. Mm -hmm. And by the time she was 45, her time was down to 224 or 225. She won a London marathon. She finished in the top six in the Olympics. And, and that was the all, first time there was Olympic women's marathon. These were all women who came to the sport fresh. And there's a seven-year window when you come to it. Age doesn't matter. There's a seven-year window when you come to a sport like that. And it, that's by the seventh year, you'll be... Okay, now there you go. <laughs> Do I have no, I've gone past that window, so, <laughs> Diver will, I, I don't know a whole lot about yeah. her, but she will probably go on improving for a few more years, you know. And right. uh, mm. Okay, she's our loss because she's gone declared for Australia. But I wouldn't worry about that. There's a lot more Sinead divers in mm-hmm. in Ireland. Right. If they, we just need if to find them. Grasp the and Mary, just briefly, you were saying the Americans, uh, the, how the American do it is the qualifying standard is two thirty seven, and then they're going to bring them to a race, a loop, and put them all out against another, and they're going to race it on one day. It's interesting because Katrina Jennings said to me that she felt the fairest way to do an Olympic trial would be to, for everybody to race in the one race. Is that what the Americans are doing? Yeah, like it's it's cutthroat. It's massively cutthroat, you know, like it's top three on that day and it's going to be a six-mile loop um, in LA on February 13th. So a lot of the American marathon runners now are going into their preparation for the trials. Um you know, you're going to have the favourites going into it, but it's the marathon and mm. it, uh, so many variables um, can happen. And I, I remember actually going to watch the American trials back in 2000 and was it eight trials? No, it must be in 2000 and it must be in the trials of 2012. Was it eight? Sorry, I can't really fully remember. Yeah. In Central Park, yeah. was that Central 2008? Park. I think it was 2008. Yeah, 2008. The November before. Probably, yeah. yeah, so it was no, 2008 actually. Mm. And Brian Sell, this guy who worked like in a Home Depot, That's right. nine to five, you know, I think he was kind of looked after sort of like a marathon mission type thing um, with a group in America. I don't exactly know the name, but he came out that day. It was Central Park, the loop of Central Park, 6.2 mile loop around and he finished third and he got to go to the Olympic Games. So mm. that's the other side. That's like the really cool story about it all being on that day, you know. Um, again, though, the Americans will have a lot bigger numbers than, than Ireland so that's obviously why they can have a trial Yeah. but for Ireland I don't know which you know it's hard to pick they, like it's, like Dick said it, it's hard to go away from the three fastest times it's hard to say like oh well such and such ran a tougher course so you know is 2.34 in New York City better than 2.32 in London for instance it's very difficult to, to have that argument Yeah. so um, so I think it will. Britain's two thirty one was run on a very tough course at the in European Zurich that yeah, time. With a massive big hill exactly, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, so yeah, it's hard yeah, to, it's hard and to you know, everyone thought Fanula then because she did that, she'd go out and run automatically run sub two thirty in Chicago. And Fanula obviously has the ability to be a two sub two thirty marathon runner. So which she hasn't done it that yet, will happen, exactly. but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it is hard to to. And you you can't have a trial over like a ten k or a half marathon because they're just too different. Yeah, I think too different. Yeah, and finally, um, with all we've seen in the last few weeks about drugs and sport and the Russians and uh, even Martha Dominguez in the last few days, a woman who who beat Sonia and and, and get, allowed took a gold medal from her. Uh, I wondered, we everything in Ireland is you know we talk about medals, we talk about you know top three, top five finishes, and even the funding for Irish athletes is based on meddling at Europeans or making podiums. Um, 
sometimes I, I think maybe did did Katrina Jennings in some way do you think that she in some way captured the Olympic spirit? Maybe not the way everybody feels about the Olympics, but that maybe there was something uh, of the of the Olympic spirit in what happened that day. Dick, what do you think? Ah, well, look, you know, you can't set yourself up as judge and jury on something like that. I, as we said at the, at the start, you know, we all kind of empathised and understood her motivation and all that. You know, the Olympic spirit, I mean, to make the Olympics is everybody, every young kid's dream. And uh, when you go out there, you, when you've been picked, I'm sure it must be very hard to give it up if you get injured or you have to pull out for, you You pulled out of Atlanta, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so like, mm. but was you, at least you'd been at one, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, two. Been at two. Two, yeah. sorry. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm sure you were devastated at the time, but imagine if it was the only one you ever made and you had to pull out. And I suppose that's what was going on through her mind. Plus, Katrina was at a higher level. She was, there was a huge weight of expectation on her and all that. So, she was measuring all of that. So she I was relieved just, rather yeah, than she devastated. Was, she wasn't measuring the thing of just, I, I have to register this, this yeah. run to become an Olympian. And you made the decision, I think, uh, well in advance, Katrina. How close was it in advance? Yeah, it was Yeah, it was good many months yeah. clean, all yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, to be honest, looking back, I, I wasn't devastated at all that I wasn't. I had competed in two Olympics yeah, and... I'm of the mindset if you go to an Olympic Games or if you go to run a 10k or whatever race it may be that you give it your best shot and that you prepare as best as you possibly could and I wasn't able to do that so I had no interest in going to the Olympics because I knew that I wasn't going to be in good shape to do that and uh, I had done a lot of hard races and I was a little bit burned out to be honest and I just wanted a break from running I just wanted to go for a few mile run every day and just uh, just for sanity as I call it but I had no interest in, in racing in 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 uh, Sydney and just to rest and get back fresh again but I suppose with Katrina Jennings you know she probably didn't think of the worst case scenario and um she probably tried to think positive and as I said when she gets into the race block everything out but it didn't work out like that and you know maybe if she had thought of the worst case scenario and spoke to the coaches and you know people maybe the the medical team and that it might have been a different uh view on it and they might have decided okay Katrina it's best if you don't run but mm. look at it's nearly four years ago now and mm. um, it's you know it's 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 past and she needs to think you know I know you said that she's still fairly traumatised about what happened but she needs to just block it out of her mind forget about it and focus on what she wants to achieve now. Mm. Well that race that day certainly showed the difficulty of running a marathon, never mind an Olympic quality Yeah, there's no hiding, there's no hiding place, absolutely not. And 26 miles, you need to be going in fully in the best of health and physically and psychologically and, you know, um, unfortunately. And it's not like a city marathon, you know, where there's 5,000 people in it and mm-hmm. you can hide somewhere yeah, yeah. chirping along at three hours pace or whatever. But when the, everybody's good in an Olympic marathon, you know, so yeah. very quickly you find yourself at the rear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much for your insights today. And Mary, uh, if you get to Rio, we don't know what distance it might be yet, but we wish you the very best. Well, for that get as to well. Thanks, <laughs> thanks everybody. Thanks, thank you, Gina. Next up, we'll hear from Sinead Farrell on the big game changer for the women's marathon, Catherine Switzer. First of all, I didn't think it would be a symbolic move for women's rights at all. I don't think I was that mature. I had just turned 20. Um, I thought it was women's fault that they didn't understand how wonderful sports was um, and that if they had a lack of opportunities, it was somehow their own fault. Um, And I was very proud of myself 
and I loved the idea of the distance, but in my heart, I just, I really loved running. Yeah. And I, I felt the longer the race was, the better I could be. And I felt really, really empowered by running in general. And that, we, we could skip ahead now 50 years, and I could tell you that's the reason why the women's running boom, boom is so massive and, and getting bigger. Because it's about empowerment. It's not about competition. It's about women feeling they can conquer anything and do anything and have a sense of self-esteem and confidence. That's really what it's all about with women. And that's why it's becoming so popular. I wanted every woman to feel that way. And I felt, well, why don't they get it? And it wasn't until I was in the race that I understand why. That was part of a News Talk interview with a woman called Catherine Switzer. Each month we were looking at a game changer in women's sport. Sinead Farrell joins us now. Sinead, can you tell us about Catherine Switzer? Yeah, Kleena. Uh, Catherine Switzer, a really interesting woman. She was the first woman to run the, ba- the Boston Marathon, uh, which she did in 1967. Now, according to her memoir, she's the undisputed and most reliable source of information when it comes to her running and her history of running. And she says that she was an official, ap- official applicant, official participant. But I will just mention uh, something I found on the Boston Athletic Association webpage. It said in 1967, she didn't declare herself as a female applicant when she ran and that they tried to physically remove her from the race which I'll talk about a little bit uh, further on and that the first official uh, winner didn't come in until 1972 and there was eight women that day who who ran and finished the race so I mean regardless of those kind of technicalities she did pioneer the start of women and their association with uh, long distance uh, long distance running. Sinead, how did she first get into running? Yes, yeah, so when she was 19, she was a student of journalism in uh, New York in 1966 and there was no women's running team at the time so she would have ran with the men and she kind of became a bit uh, frustrated and uh, went up to her coach, Arnie Briggs, and said, I want to run the, the Boston Marathon. He told her, no, can't be done. No woman has ever ran the Boston Marathon. She became quite irate. They had a bit of an argument and and he said, look, the only way I let you run the Boston Marathon is if you do the distance in a practice. And she was delighted with the news because she was running colossal distances like 10 miles a day. So she was fairly confident she was going to get to to run anyway. And so three weeks out of the race, uh, Switzer, along with uh, her trainer, ran the marathon in a trial run. And she was so comfortable with the pace that coming into the home stretch, she suggested they add another five miles to the dash. And he accepted, even though he was quite exhausted at the time. And uh, by the end of it, he kind of passed out. But he knew, you know, that she was ready to do this. And uh, like we, we mentioned before, the about the whole idea whether she was official or not they they checked the rule book according to her there was no rule to discriminate against gender so they were happy enough to register her and along with Briggs and her boyfriend who she calls Big Tom I'm not sure if she's any relation to our Irish singer Big Tom I presume not um, and another guy from the cross country club they they took off uh, for the Boston Marathon in, in April of 1967 And what is her legacy do you think for women in sport? Yeah well I suppose I mean going into the to the race they she was she was quite well received by the other male participants it was quite a progressive environment there they were all you know saying wishing her the best of luck and actually asking her if she would maybe get their wives more uh, involved in running so there was probably more of a progressive thinking out there that more women should be running and that kind of gave her a determination to finish it out now she was attacked around mile four of the race and her boyfriend actually charged in and pushed him out of the way so that she could finish the race. Now he did kind of turn on her a little bit further on and decided he was going to run the race on his own because he was 
he was trying to uh, make the Olympics um, team at the time and he thought that by doing that it was going to implicate his chances so he blamed it on her and ran off and then when they eventually finished it they passed him out because he ran out of steam. He had told her beforehand if a girl can run it I can run it he didn't really train and then was kind of it proved to be um, but it was super common in the end to say that when they did pass him out and um, well as I said she went on and ran 39 marathons she won the New York Marathon in 1974 she brought her time down to her personal best in 1975 to 2 hours and 51 minutes from the 4 hours and 20 minutes she ran in 1967 and she went on to create more opportunities for women to run marathons from then on so definitely was a, a pioneering athlete and by 1972 there was at least 8 women running the marathon which was just a few years after she had finished it Thanks Sinead for that Thank you for listening to our very first Off the Bench podcast I'd like to thank Katrina Jennings for sharing her experience to our expert panel, our producer Sue Murphy and our researcher Sinead Farrell. If you want to get in touch with us, you can mail us at offthebench at newstalk.com, get us on Twitter at newstalkfm or on Facebook. This podcast is available on newstalk.com or you can subscribe on iTunes. Next month, we look at Olympic swimming amongst other things. For me, Lena Foley, it's goodbye and happy Christmas. If you will me, women, let me hear you Salute, salute, you think we're just pretty things